people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. Today we've got an interview with the co-author of We Go Where They Go, the story of anti-racist action, uh, Shannon Clare. We weren't exactly sure when the book was coming out in the UK, um, but it's actually out now. So you can buy it from the PM UK website, or if you're in North America, pmpress.org. That's it. On with the interview. And now I'm joined by Shannon Clare, one of the co-authors of Where We Go, They Go, the story of anti-racist action. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Shannon. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, it, it, it's titled uh, We Go Where They Go. We yeah, Go Where They same Go. Same idea. Slightly different word order. But yeah, very happy to be here. It's important. It's important to get the, it's important to get the slogans right. I feel. Yeah. Um, for for those in the UK who might have some idea about kind of anti-fascism in America or anti anti-racist activity in America, um, you know, I think the the first thing to emphasize is that anti-racist action came primarily from youth youth subcultures and particularly the punk scenes and skinhead subcultures and things like this. How did it? How, I mean, I guess, how did it get started for those people who might not really know? And how did it kind of develop it then into go a national or a, a much more widespread movement across the whole of North America? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, so anti-racist action um, was started by people who were um, in the skinhead scene, specifically um, in uh, specifically the city of uh, Minneapolis or Minneapolis and St. Paul, known as the Twin Cities uh, in Minnesota. Um, where uh, right around like 1986, you started started to have this um, infusion of the uh, white power skinhead into skinhead scenes. Um, whereas the the groups that were already active and were already skinheads, um, there was a group called the Baldies in Minneapolis who were uh, multiracial, uh, proudly multiracial and working class, and um, didn't take kindly basically to uh, all of a sudden Nazis showing up in their social scene and at their shows. Uh, and so they started organizing to uh, push out those Nazis. Um, so the Baldies were the ones who then came up with the name Anti-Racist Action, uh, inspired by Anti-Fascist Action, uh, as UK listeners might be familiar with. And indeed, I, I won't even say much about AFA because uh, I would risk, I think, saying things incorrectly that <laughs> maybe your listeners know better. Uh, but they, yeah, they were inspired by the name. So the Baldies in Minneapolis were then the ones who came up with the name ARA. But... Um, uh, to, to give a name to their organizing, basically pushing Nazis out of their youth scenes and the punk scenes, the skinhead scene. Um, but Minneapolis was not the only city where this was happening. Very similar trends basically uh, happened in a variety of cities in uh, the Midwest of the U.S. So like Cincinnati, Ohio, Chicago, Illinois, um, Kansas City, uh, of, and then all, all the way over into Portland uh, a couple of years later, like 89, 90. Um, and so these groups uh, heard about the work that they were doing through uh, traveling and maybe just like going to city, going to a neighboring city to like see a punk show and meeting people, or also you know zines and all these different things and keeping in touch across the different scenes. Uh, they sort of realized that they were doing similar work uh, and came together, and um, so that was that was sort of the initial genesis of uh, anti-racist action, and then the next big. Uh, milestone where it really transformed into a uh like network was um in 1994 um 
there was a conference uh, meant to bring together uh, lots of different uh, anti-fascist activists, and that created a network uh, initially under the name the Midwest Anti-Fascist Network, but don't let that confuse you. That was only for one year. Um, it functionally, it was ARA the following year. They renamed themselves uh, ARA. And uh, so that 94 conference and then renaming in 95 is what uh, sort of established some formal infrastructure of uh, a network and that they were going to have, you know, conferences every year and that they were going to meet each other and all this stuff. And so, um, yeah, that was a very short overview, but an even shorter one would be uh, youth scenes, kicking Nazis out of punk shows, uh, people meet each other, and then um, flash forward a bit, uh, 94, there's a conference uh, that that establishes more of like the uh, the network and the infrastructure that continues. So there are, there are the four authors of this book, mm-hmm. um, the three of whom were in were in ARA, mm-hmm. um, and and you were you were the fourth who who was not mm-hmm. a bit before your time. As a as a collective, how easy was it for you to for you all to kind of step back from that history that three of you were so intimately involved with, and presumably you are also an anti fascist and you know you know not 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 neutral in this in this history. Mm-hmm. How did you step back? Because I, when I was reading. What I've read of the book, you know, it takes a very measured, I mean, later in the book, you get into a more of a, you know, arguing for a certain position. But for most of the book, it's quite a neutral, neutrally written history or measured history. So I suppose how, yeah, how was, why was that important for you to do? And how was the process of, of working that out? Mm. Um, thank you. Yeah, that's a really, that's a cool, interesting question. I feel like kind of the like historiography people haven't asked as much about, but uh, as a history person, I, I like this question. Um, Me too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, I think uh, I, don't, I, would, I would be curious what my co-authors who were in ARA would would say um, in response to it and maybe uh, would have a harder time sort of uh, stepping outside of it because, as you say, I it was like, uh, although I'm not, don't consider myself neutral and, and do consider myself anti-fascist, uh, it, it was like before my time. So I think for me, I mean, I started the project as like literally a school paper um, where I, I had heard about ARA, but like was finding so, so little about what it was in any of its history, even though the little that I did hear made it seem like it was this like uh, massive youth movement. And it really was. And it was a big deal. I was surprised at how little there was. I then um, was able to get in touch with people through like friends of friends of friends Um to then uh, start researching it. And that's how I first got in contact with my co-authors as well. Um, So for me, it kind of was historical. And I think, you know, maybe it was easier for me because like I didn't know what had happened. And so I like, I couldn't give like my own view of things because I was, for me, my source was talking to these people who were there and asking them what happened. Um, And we do definitely, we tried to make the book um, you know, based on the like uh, oral histories of the people who were there, just because we we think that they're important and valuable sources. Um, but absolutely, we also did try to be, um, I'll say, balanced. Yeah, like sort of in a historical sense, not of in a like, you know, shitty both sidesism. What if the Nazis are right a little bit? Of course not. But yeah, from a historical sense, yes. And I think that the reason for that was because. Um, 
you know, I, I think it's a cool, positive political thing that I think sort of all four of us are more committed to like the work and how important this work is and the um, and being as effective as possible uh, to fight fascism. And so, you know, it the what is most helpful for uh, the anti-fascist movement is to have an accurate understanding of history uh, in order to understand both what uh, did work and, and what might be able to continue to be replicated um, and equally important, the things that did not work uh, and the mistakes that we need to learn from. Um, and so I think we just sort of uh, prioritized, yeah, the, the importance of the history and of learning from it um, above sort of the, the importance of um, wanting to cheerlead or, or pat ourselves on the back sort of. Yeah, there are some, this is a, this is maybe a more a UK anti-fascist book phenomenon, but there's a few books who, whose kind of narrative of their history is more like, you know, there was a series of successful fights in pubs and we won them all and everyone got away without anything bad happening and we defeated everybody very easily. I love and to hear that, it. <laughs> It's very fun to read. It's like a nice fantasy, but I feel like it's not as particularly useful, mm. um, useful history. Yeah. Um, I, th I think when when it's when we're talking about anti-fascist groups, it's always really important to talk about, you know, the movements and the tendencies that they were opposing. You know, the fascists, the far right, and I think in America, like there is a there is a big difference between uh, there is a big difference between how fascism of the far right kind of developed there, especially because there's these kind of twin legacies of. Of you know of settler colonialism on the one hand and obviously slavery and continuing oppression of of, of black people um in america as well so what did the I suppose it, when what was the the far right that ara was responding to in the in the late 80s and into the 90s mm -hmm. yeah um a uh, uh, great question i think i in my mind sort of divide it into like a couple of sort of distinct periods um and so to start off would again be that that skinhead scene um and um you know i, I think a phenomenon that uh definitely existed in the uk as well uh obviously and sort of um pioneered in important ways by like uh screwdriver for example of the the white power skinhead um and what you know so many people now take for granted as like what a skinhead is is this like the big nazi guy um that was uh, I think to a significant degree, um, we talk about how there was sort of some um, like aging far right leadership, people like, for example, Tom Metzger, um, who was uh, out of California and was running um, and, and had like been a Klan's member before and had uh, had a long, long history of white supremacist organizing. Um, I think looking around and very explicitly wanting to like, how do we bring in young people into our um, potentially kind of aging out uh, movement um, and how do we bring in young people to like you know basically be our foot soldiers and our thugs while you know those of us uh, people like Tom Metzger continue to call the shots and be in charge um, and so there was a pretty concerted effort by the far right to um, start recruiting in skinhead circles and uh, so you had yeah that, that birth of the white power skinhead um, who you know pretty unapologetically uh, yeah, embraced like Nazism and swastikas and all this stuff that um, even on the American far right had been kind of uh, taboo before then because, you know, in 1950s or something, a like good 
red-blooded American male who's quite racist, like, had just 10 years ago been killing Nazis in Germany. Uh, and so Nazism was not super cool. Um, that sort of starts to erode in, like, uh, I think the late 70s. Um, there's a book, uh, oh boy, by Kathleen Bellow, uh, B-E-L-E-W. Mm. Do you remember the title of that? Bring the War Home. I can't remember the title. I've <laughs> yeah, read the book as a well. A <laughs> great book, Bring the War Home. She talks about uh, this sort yes. of post-Vietnam uh, turn that the white power movement does uh, into more, uh, uh, one, like revolutionary white supremacists uh, organizing as opposed to like shoring up the government. They want to overthrow the government. And then also that's kind of the period uh, where you start to get Nazism. So um, I hope that wasn't too much background, but uh, yeah. Basically, in the late 80s, uh, or starting even kind of the mid-80s, like 86, when the first, uh, like, ARA slash proto-ARA anti-racist skinheads are organizing, they are fighting white power Nazi skinheads. Um, then the second most obvious sort of time period uh, is, like, starting in the early uh, 90s, there are uh, lots of clans, uh, Ku Klux Klan, um, but it is kind of clans plural because the clan had like fractured. And so there are lots of different groups uh, and often it's on like a state by state basis. Uh, so there are clansmen who are um, going sort of town to town uh, and, and they really are organizing in like, uh, whereas Nazi skinheads were like kind of by definition coming out of these like city youth scenes and like music scenes. Um, the clan is really like traveling all over and this is kind of the origin of this, like, we go where they go idea. The clan is going into a city and, you know, maybe just, like, chilling on the, like, city hall steps or something with a PA and, like, giving a speech about white supremacy. Um, and, you know, there are maybe, uh, again, like, at this time, the clan and the Nazis start to go along uh, together more than they once had. But still, the, the clan are their own formation that's maybe more focused on, like, um, you know, maybe they're more... Uh, religious and they might uh, talk more about God and stuff and they uh, are kind of maybe more like a little bit more like quote-unquote activisty, I guess where they're like trying to build an organization you know um, whereas the the Nazis were sort of more like in these scenes and like fighting for control of the streets and just like beating people up on street corners um, so then the Klan uh, is, a, is a really big push of ARA's growth as as ARA chapters um, are traveling all over following these clans uh trying to uh uh counter protest them um and then kind of uh later on say into the like late 90s early 2000s um it really kind of is a lot of different groups um so there's uh i think you ex maybe explicitly posed the question as like the racist right i'm not sure or maybe you said far right because um, what ARA starts doing is um, fighting groups who are not explicitly racist, although they, they, they are, but um, ARA gets into uh, a lot of reproductive justice work. And in that case, what they're, um, the people they're opposing are like really radical uh, anti-abortion extremists, um, organizations like there's like Operation Rescue or um, like Missionaries to the Preborn. Um, and this is sort of the Christian right, uh, people who are just trying to shut down abortions. Uh, shut down abortion access, protesting clinics, all this stuff. Um, and they do overlap with the racist right, but, you know, are their own distinct thing. Uh, there's 
a, a group called the World Church of the Creator that we uh, profile at some length who are, uh, I don't even know, they're kind of their own weird thing aesthetically and ideologically, although you, you, you can boil them down to like, they were, they were neo-Nazi racist bros. Um, well, I, I don't say that historically, but like if I were explaining to someone, what's the world church? I'm like, eh, they're, they're, they're Nazi, they're Nazi dudes somewhere. Um, and, um, uh, then there, there is another neo-Nazi formation that ARA fights in like the early 2000s called the National Alliance. Um, uh, up in Canada, uh, for example, in Toronto, Toronto was, uh, a, a really big early ARA chapter in Canada. Uh, and they, their like sort of um, initial impetus was to fight this thing called the Heritage Front. And the Heritage Front was, um, I think, explicitly intended as like a, I think front is coming from this idea of like a united front for the right. Um, and I think they, you know, obviously the Klan is much less of a Canadian thing than an American thing. But they, I think even it had some members who were like in clans um, but basically, you know, we're again, sort of on the Nazi side and, um, yeah. So I, <laughs> I hope that's not just like listing names too much. And I hope that that's actually interesting, but, um, it, it, yeah, I hope that wasn't just listing names too much. That's, that's, like I said, kind of a variety I think of that was really, yeah, Nazis, that was clan. Really useful and combinations thereof. something I really didn't factor in for the question was, you know how as area developed and how it how the far right developed the targets and the the opposition changed and and therefore perhaps the tactics changed as well maybe we'll get onto that yeah. as well cool. um i i, I thankfully um nicely my my next question was around this question of organizing around reproductive justice um which it seems seems like a bit of a it seems like a big change from you know purely being anti-fascist or being anti-racist and i wondered more broadly like how was kind of feminism how did feminism sit within ara over time like um how was that accommodated within the various groups and again onto the onto the reproductive rights thing how was that justification made and and, and carried out because i think it is an interesting uh interesting facet mm -hmm. um yeah i i love this question so for this and for future questions, how, how long do you want me to talk? I could, I could talk for like 30 seconds. I could talk for like, you know, the rest of the hour. What do you think makes sense? I, I do think it's important to get into. Mm -hmm. So go for a bit and I will maybe give you a wave when okay. I need you to wind okay. down. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> let's see here. I think so ARA, like very, very early on, it was kind of coming out of scenes that like weren't about like activism really uh and so there were like committed political people but there were you know when it was first starting among like anti-racist skinhead crews um you know a lot you, you don't have to be super woke to be like a skinhead in 1987 who's like yeah i'll go beat the shit out of those nazis like uh, you know, it's awesome and I don't want to reduce it, but it's just not the like same thing necessarily as like leftist, like activism, quote unquote. Um, and so these anti-racist skinhead crews very early on are not super feminist. Uh, women are present, I think often getting the short end of the stick. Uh, we talked to a very active, um, Chicago and Minneapolis skinhead named Michelle, 
who talked about the ways in which, um, yeah, the like women in those scenes just kind of put up with a lot of shit. And so it like, uh, yeah, I think her, I think her quote was, I'm not saying they were sexist, but I'm not saying they weren't yeah, sexist yeah, either. So it's like it's very so telling. Like yeah. And I remember when, when she did that interview, she kind of like laughed about it and was, it was, you know, careful to also impress that, you know, the people she's talking about, are, like she still has so much love for them and like, she's not trying to paint them as like monsters, but just that it really was not like in the culture sort of, if that makes sense. Um, so if I were to maybe like reduce it to a word, I think there was to an extent early on there, sometimes it could just be, and this is kind of a criticism sometimes from the outside. I think sometimes people within ARA contend with this, that it can sometimes feel like kind of macho quote unquote, and like these big macho dudes, uh, getting in fistfights with Nazis. Um, and not to say that, uh, because women also participated in those fights and, but yeah. Uh, just trying to sort of give some sort of cultural overview. Uh, I think it's then in like, uh, for example, Minneapolis is one chapter that really leads this charge into reproductive justice work. Um, so uh, a source that we spoke to from Minneapolis uh, spoke about how basically they successfully kicked the Nazis out of their city. And then they were looking around and saying like, well, obviously like, you know, we're, we're not going to say that, like, oh, just we won. Like, obviously, there are still problems. So what are we seeing? And they looked around and they felt like the, like, far right or even fascists that they were seeing who were still active were these, like, radical right, Christian right, um, anti-abortion groups who were active in their city. Uh, and so they um, decided that they were going to push against that. And I think this generation of Minneapolis ARA... Uh, did have some members in common with the earlier, uh, like, first group of Minneapolis ARA, but they also, we had a um, a pamphlet or something, I don't remember, that we read, where they, they explicitly wrote about, like, um, you know, maybe a few years ago, we feel like uh, Minneapolis ARA was, uh, I want to say it maybe even, like, used the phrase toxic masculinity, even though that's, like, so early to use that phrase. Or maybe it was, like, macho or something like that but kind of a, a word like that where they're this is ara minneapolis saying it they're not like throwing ara under the bus but they were saying like you know maybe a little bit earlier there was sort of that sort of tough guy stuff going on sometimes uh whereas now i think there were more women involved more queer people and they wanted to move away from that um and so this is the generation that now was saying um in like the early mid 90s uh like hey these anti-abortion people seem to be really um active and seem to fit the definition of fascism to us and are people who we want to fight um and so that was not the first or the only group uh who were you know going to um like abortion clinics and defending abortion clinics uh and wanted to support reproductive rights but they then introduce it to the ara network as like a formal resolution thing um, so the ARA network again had formed at this like 94 conference and was this very decentralized thing, um, sort of brought together by this shared like culture and the shared background where a lot of people were coming out of youth scenes and stuff. Um, but the only like requirements, the only explicit things in the network, uh, were these four points of unity. Um, we go where they go, meaning we go and fight the Nazis. We don't, you know, wait for them to come to us or we don't like just sit still and like pray that they'll leave. We, we go where they go and we confront them. Um, 
that they don't rely on the cops and courts. Um, you know, sometimes they'll go to court, but they're not like trying to sue the clan out of existence or whatever. Um, that they have uh, like anti-fascist unity, an attack on one and his attack on all. And then they had this fourth point, which was um, a sort of vague statement of like, uh, we don't like oppression. Um, and so it's then in like, I think 96, 97-ish that Minneapolis is this group saying like, uh, reproductive justice is an important aspect of, is, is an important thing that we need to fight for. And so they propose it uh, into this like uh, language behind the, the this this language that like kind of because it's the only thing uh that like formally says it's the only like formal like rules or whatever really in order to be an ara chapter uh you know putting reproductive justice in those things is a really big deal and so um the first year they introduced it it did not pass then the second year it did pass but that's just to say that that really started this conversation and got ara chapters uh kind of discussing like is this something that we consider like a part of who we are is this work that we want to do? Um, again, Minneapolis was not the first or the only chapter uh, who had done, um, you know, reproductive justice work, and so, um, and so it did pass. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. Some people talk about like, you know, there's also like, this is really obscure, but I find it really interesting because I'm I'm straight edge and I'm vegan. Okay, go so on. there's like this like hardline movement at this time where like vegan straight edge, hardcore punk is like going so off the rails that they're like, we, you know, oh, veganism because life is sacred and life is so sacred that abortion is fucked up. So there's like, it's interesting how things can kind of... <laughs> Wait, what, what, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, it's, what's the term? Uh, biocentric, where it's like life for life's sake. Has its own inherent sure yeah. okay wow I, I <laughs> uh yeah so you know not that that's this huge gigantic influence but it's uh people i think mentioned it and it's just kind of one example of like you know ara being so firmly based in like these youth scenes in the way that it is um the fact that uh you know sometimes politics could kind of morph in unexpected ways or there, there's not some universal um, thing in a way that actually I, th I think there kind of is today at least in a lot of like u.s cities that like yeah like you're probably you know uh pro-choice um so so that it was kind of this struggle that they put forward and that they had to fight for um and then lastly i will say the other thing that i think uh led ara towards um towards reproductive justice work uh is that i think the like work the 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 forms that it needed to take fit well with what they were already good at basically um and so in the case of reproductive justice i've kind of um spoken about it but maybe i i could have given a definition earlier that um what a lot of this work looks like is um so for example clinic defense and so there are that means like a physical abortion clinic um you know back when the U.S. had those. Uh, I shouldn't say that. We still have them, obviously. But um, a, like physical abortion clinic, and, you know, there are people who are anti-choice who will be protesting across the street. Um, but, you know, they can get pretty rowdy. They're, like, quite extreme. They're, you know, like, literally, when, when a person goes in wanting to get an abortion, you know, these anti-abortion protesters are, like, throwing shit or, like, physically um, 
you know, maybe blocking or maybe like harassing or even attacking people who are trying to go in in order to get health care. Um, and so that's a big part of then uh, this reproductive justice work is what's called clinic defense, where you are going and basically like, yeah, physically defending the clinics, being a wall between the clinic and the anti-abortion protesters um, and escorting people in uh, to get them safely in where they need their, to get their health care. Um, and so I think that it's important that that, you know, involved like physical space and sort of being willing to, um, to be, yeah, to be physical, not necessarily getting in fistfights all the time, but that it was a like physical throwdown. You're not like writing letters to your congressman, you're going somewhere. And like the fact that your body is there is important. Um, I think that is a sort of mode of activism that ARA started with and knew how to do uh, and was sort of on a terrain that they, uh, yeah, had, had the power to affect, again, compared to, you know, as like an interest group fucking writing letters or something. That's that's not ARA's wheelhouse. This uh, physical stuff is. And so I think that's a really important reason of why ARA got into it, um, which I like to point out. So, you know, one, there's kind of the big ideology stuff that you ask about and that I... Um, try to give a reasonable overview of, but then I think also that um, tactical question is also an important part of it. I mean, I suppose also just one last thing on this. In America, it feels like uh, anti, anti-abortion, anti anti-choice, you know, activism is, is much more a preserve of the of the far right. You know, even you're just thinking kind of the more institutional or the more... Um, you know, media far right. I'm thinking like you know Ben Shapiro, these kind of people mm-hmm. who are like incredibly racist, but also the even almost a bigger part of their politics is this anti-choice misogynist mm-hmm. um, kind of outlook that they have. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, the thing that thing about anti-racist action is it was a decentralized network, and that's how it kind of developed. And I wondered what your thoughts were on like some of the advantages of that model and some of the kind of drawbacks to that model, because in the I guess. Making it relevant to the UK, we had the we had the anti-fascist network for the whole of the 2010s, and there were, in some respects, it was quite flexible, and it, you could adapt to local situations quite quickly because it was local groups responding to local issues. But at the same time, when there was like a national need for a national kind of effort or coordination, things kind of started to become less coherent. I feel mm-hmm. so. I wondered how you how that played out with ARA. Yeah, um, I mean, I. I hate to say it, I feel like it's so just like timeless. Like there may, there may never be like a solution. I, I think it's it's just that classic trade-off of like you just described that sort of um, being able to be locally flexible versus being like, uh, you know, nationally super tight um, is, is a trade-off. Um, we spoke, for example, uh, with one, one big source was um, Michael Novick, who's a really awesome very long time um activist did you did you nod your head there do you are you familiar with michael um yeah. yeah um he's been on for example like the working class history podcast talking about anti-vietnam war activism mm-hmm. um Novick was involved with this group um the john brown anti-clan committee um which i will i will quote the book here um an organization built around a uh quote from michael very high level of political unity, end quote, with ARA, which, um, quote, kind of came from the other end. JBEC had to go through a big struggle to try to open up and broaden its political base, whereas ARA kind of had the opposite struggle of trying to tighten up and develop its political depth and understanding, end quote. Um, And so, you know, I say that 
not expecting people to even be familiar with the JVAC, uh, but just th this idea of like, you know, those are two ways to run a organization, which whichever it is. Um, so there was something like the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, which sort of rose out of the new left. And um, I think a lot of its members were, you know, very dedicated activists at this time. A lot of them coming uh, either, you know, probably still were or at one point had been uh, like Marxists maybe. Um, and they really said like, this is the line and, and this is our understanding. Uh, and they were able to do important work, but um, didn't yeah have have that broad base um ara by contrast i think i mean ara was really successful and i think that's really cool and really important and um you know it over the course of its life it had like hundreds of chapters um and thousands of members and you know if you encounter people who count people who maybe like went to events that ara was whatever I, I don't feel i need to, to to come up with numbers that are so hard to measure but era was like genuinely not just like because we like it but genuinely from like a sheer numbers perspective uh was a big deal that incorporated like a lot of people um especially again in those like youth scenes and punk and counterculture and stuff it was like this sort of omnipresent thing where like oh you know your scene has an ara or, or your city has an ara and you know some of those people from the scene so if you want to get involved, you can. Um, and youth culture, I, I do like to stress, was not like the only, you know, not not every single person in ARA was like a punk or whatever, but was a sort of important uh, recruiting ground for it. But that's just to say that I think it's really important that like it was able to be like a, a, a first step from people, uh, for people rather, I believe is how um, uh, an activist named Josh from Columbus put it, that it was... It could be a first step for people. It, it, you know, Josh was someone who like was sort of already interested in coming to like leftist activism, but then these groups that he was seeing were like, yeah, here's our newspaper, like read it, and like memorize our messages, and like you know understand the perfect politics, and then like we'll make you a probationary member for a year or two, uh, and instead ARA was like very welcoming, and you sort of felt like if you you know you didn't have to be an expert, and you could show up and and contribute to it uh and i think one thing that ara did that was really cool and important was um and now i'm quoting a member named steve that it like we're not quoting but paraphrasing that ara was able to have those people but also have like very committed you know people who had been doing anti-racist uh organizing for 40 years people like um michael novick or uh, some other people, a, a anti-racist lawyer named Mac in, in Columbus uh, was really important. You, you were able to have those same people all in the same room and all learning from each other, to, to paraphrase Steve. Um, and so that's really important and really cool. And I think ARA was like uh, really successful in that regard. And then as far as the, uh, I, I again, I guess think those, those trade-offs are just kind of eternal that then um it's kind of you know how how do you have a an organization that is open to people who want to come in off the street and like learn while they're struggling and then also be some like super tight formation that can perfectly you know mobilize people to like yeah super tightly um so in conclusion i think just 
I don't think I had any answers in, in all of that talking I, I, that I did. And I think to an extent, not that there aren't answers, like, and it's, you know, something that we can continue to, to work on, but that it is really this perennial question of that flexibility versus a, a tighter formation. Um, and I guess, yeah, ARA was definitely the flexible decentralized approach. Um, and that was important for it to exist. And that was important to like, uh, get people in the same room willing to work with each other because uh, they didn't have to agree on everything. But as far as decentralized approaches go, ARA was like um, really successful at it in a way that I think is really cool. Um, an interesting point that you make early on in the book is that as ARA grew, it got whiter. Like it started off with this multiracial, multiracial you know, skinhead crews and as obviously as it, it grew, it became whiter. And, and in... in you know, in a in the in the UK, it's slightly more understandable, I suppose, although not excusable. In the US, it's much more of a problem, I feel, because of these legacies of racism that are so ever present and so interwoven within the American, you know, within America itself as a as an idea, as a concept. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how, like, how did um, ARA relate to to groups that were, you know, black led groups or people of color led groups? Who were who were organizing for their people, and how were some of those some of those kind of tensions um, resolved between you know being a white a, a largely white organization that was doing anti-racist work? And it's not necessarily obviously a problem because doing anti-racism is a very very good thing, but it does raise some some questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um... Definitely, as you say, we sort of describe ARA as um, ARA was sort of really not about, uh, I think we use the phrase for better and for worse, uh, was not about uh, its like individual members, um, yeah, sort of like overcoming their own racism or like wrestling with their own beliefs in that same way. Um, it, I think in many ways was sort of like, uh, not in many ways, it, it was before that discourse was such a um, was such a, a prominent thing on the left. And so I, I say that not because like, I think it's bullshit when people are like, oh, let's not judge things by the, by, by their standards, or let's not judge things by our standards, let's judge them by theirs. You know, I think that's nonsense. <laughs> um, but just, just to, that like, it seems more contradictory when we think of it in today's terms and thinking of it in today's terms is valid. But my point is that people, at the time, I think we're not necessarily thinking in those terms of like, oh, I need to like follow the leadership of, you know, people of color in the anti-racist struggle and I need to, um, uh, you know, unlearn my own racism. Certainly some people were and maybe some of the most committed people who had the biggest like impact on ARA, uh, who were really p- committed political people uh, and really leading ARA, I think maybe were thinking in those terms. Um, but at the same time, for a lot of people, um people were for example um white people i think were often uh fighting for their own liberation is as one person put it um one person from a cincinnati crew uh where like they were themselves opposed to uh fascism and in the case of you know like the the nazis like who are of course extremely racist and white supremacist um but those are like not the only targets of the nazis um 
and so uh, I think basically just to say that people um, often didn't think that they were fighting like on behalf of anyone else. They were fighting like even if they were white, they were fighting the Klan because they wanted to fight the Klan because like they hated the Klan. Um, and they were uh, in, uh, also importantly like uh, in competition with the Klan is how one person, that same person, uh, Matt from Cincinnati, uh, that like every, you know, you know, if you're like a 15-year-old kid in like a small town and maybe like something of an outcast or maybe you like kind of don't like the system, then you could be vulnerable to being like targeted and recruited by the Klan. Uh, and every one of those kids who is instead recruited by ARA to fight the Klan uh, is one member who is not in the Klan. And so that's really cool and important as well. Um, as far as, but yeah, so so all of that, just to say that like, I think that's a lot of how it was how ARA members were viewing it not to say that like and therefore it totally doesn't matter that it was a super white anti-racist group because uh yeah that that is absolutely something that has to be reckoned with um I think uh the short answer of like how did ARA sort of relate to um for example uh maybe like POC led uh groups or or struggles or movements um not to cop out, but the short answer is that like ARA never really like resolved that question. And because it was so decentralized and worked over 20 years, um, there were, I think, lots of different uh, examples or lots of different answers at different times in different places. But um, we tried to, we, we profiled a few in one chapter in particular where like, uh, for example, in Lansing, ARA was itself a like, uh, a, a quite white group, but they worked like in coalition with um a lot of these other groups who were in their area of of lansing which is where uh, michigan state is so there were uh the, the big one was mecha um the movement of uh chicano students over that as atlan um they they worked with mecha um in order to fight uh racist policies uh, at the university and also at the state level because lansing is the michigan state capital um and so that is one example where ARA was like, you know, not explicitly, that's not necessarily how they like build themselves, but sort of in practice were a pretty white group working closely in coalition with another group that was, um, that was uh, kids of color. There are other places like Detroit um, that were pretty multiracial uh, and they kind of did interesting organizing that was pretty, that was a little bit different than a lot of what ARA did, where there was more... Uh, a sort of broader view of racism and like economic racism, for example, in Detroit and this like disinvestment and that, uh, you know, maybe what little money is coming into the city is not going to like the, the black kids who actually live there. Um, and so ARA Detroit had like economic demands where they were saying like that the city of Detroit should, um, I think the city of Detroit already had a jobs program. And so ARA Detroit organized around like uh, fighting cuts to that and organized for like Oh, they were, they were like building some massive stadium that was going to like gentrify the neighborhood and shit. And so they were like, well, if you're going to build this massive stadium, like you should have these like hiring quotas that like such and such percentage of the jobs go to local Detroit youth. Um, and so that was one way that Detroit did kind of different things than the sort of more strict anti-fascism that a lot of groups did. Um, and uh, also was itself a multiracial group. Um yeah, so I think maybe to, to try to put a bow on it, 
uh, the like three categories maybe are like white people who were fighting the Klan or fighting Nazis like sort of because they wanted to and sort of on their own terms. Um, not to say that that's without its own problems, but that's uh, could could be how it was thought of. Uh, and then the other one um, working in coalition with groups of color uh, and the other one, uh, which it's important to acknowledge that ARA was white, but also important not to erase the contributions of uh, when ARA had members of color. Uh, certain times and certain places, ARA was quite multiracial. Uh, Toronto, again, one of the, the biggest chapters in ARA really uh, overall and specifically in Canada. Um, and they were like a, a quite multiracial chapter, for example. Um, and so, um, yeah, things varied over time and across place, but I hope that gives an overview of a few different approaches. No, that's really useful. And I think the point you made about um, the first group, you know, doing it for themselves, I think is a really key one. Um, not without problems, mm -hmm. admittedly, but also perfectly valid at the same time. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to wrap up. Um, so there's an element of anti-fascist kind of the phenomenon of anti-fascist organizing. It's quite generational, like groups spring up to oppose a particular threat, then die away, and then new th formations come about. And there's often, I think, a kind of gen generational disconnect between previous previous waves and the newer wave or whatever. And I think what's so good about this book is that it it is part of the generational transfer of knowledge. You know, these, these, the, what makes up the book is, what you know, kind of the core of the book is these interviews you've done with all these activists and members and people who've related to TRA um, and, you know, found all these kind of resources and pamphlets and whatever that you've, you've relied on to, 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 to tell the history. Um, and the, the benefit in there is like, I think, you know, in a way these kind of, these older activists who might not be involved so much anymore or, you know, retired or, you know, still involved but not, haven't been asked the right questions, I don't know how to really put that one, can start talking and start expressing and, 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 and passing on knowledge. So I wondered, mm -hmm. you know, what, from the book, what do you think are some important lessons that we can learn today as anti-fascists? And I'm not just saying within North America, but also, you know, just generally... You know the far right is the far right everywhere, despite its contours of, of of different of different places. Yeah, um, I uh, one that immediately comes to mind because I think I'm basically just gonna put uh, your own words back to you. But is that like yeah that I that like intergenerational aspect um, was like that that was like probably my favorite part of writing this book. It was just so cool for me, and because you know. I was so used to in my own organizing, uh, you know, like my uh, my first organizing was like literally like as a high school group, and so everyone is in high school, and then there's like student organizing where everyone was in college, and then there's other organizing where it's not explicitly tied to a school, but like in practice, people are so often like the same age and in their own sort of demographic groups that, um, yeah, like. Honestly, that was a huge lesson that I took for my own purposes was that like people have been leftist for more than like the five years that you've been involved in leftism. Like I promise, you know, obviously that's a, a tongue in cheek uh, talking like directly to like, you know, a 20 year old or something. Um, but genuinely, I think like it was really 
it like sounds obvious when you say it of like, oh, you know, there are older people who are like leftists too. Um, that should go without saying, but I think I just hadn't really internalized it in the same way. And this book was like, the, all these interviews and stuff were like absolute nourishment for the soul of talking to so many people uh, and realizing that like, they are still all out there. And then maybe I don't usually meet them in like the organizing that I do, but they are out there. And there's so much to learn from people who have been doing leftist activism from for 20 years or 40 years or 60 years. Um, and so I would say, I don't know if I would usually think of this question, but because of the way, or the, of this answer rather, but because of the way you pose the question, that is one that comes to mind is like, I encourage people who are um, of any age group to try and like reach beyond uh, your own age group and find people who are younger and older and to sort of realize that we do have this intergenerational knowledge that's a really important and valuable resource for us, but that can sometimes be, um, yeah, really hard to bring out because, you know, if it is, you know, a student group, it's going to be all 20 year olds and maybe they're kind of shit bags and maybe they're not willing to listen enough to their elders. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it certainly has its challenges, but I think that's, that can be a really cool and positive and energizing thing. If you can like meet people uh, who are like in your city or in your area of a, of a sort of, different uh generation maybe uh I, I think we all have a lot to learn from each other um more broadly uh and i'll try to be quick here um i don't know one that comes to mind is that i think what ara did uh that really blew me away when i was first learning about it was like how public they were and how above facing they were um compared to the like only model of anti-fascism that i had ever known existed was this like super super closed off constantly masked up anonymous uh you know secret like, ninja group. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh very like small closed off groups of uh of anti-fascists um and so i'm not saying that that like anonymity and stuff doesn't have its place and i don't want to uh wag my finger at people who feel the need to protect their identities but um and also i think that the conditions have changed and now with fucking smartphones everywhere and all, the, all this stuff obviously i think like mass surveillance basically is more of a thing than it was 40 30 years ago when ara was in in this book we the period we cover in this book and so that's valid so i don't know but also i'm not trying to caveat my point into oblivion my point is that i think anti-fascism can be uh, it, it can be like public facing and above ground sometimes and can be more um uh, it, it can involve more people who don't have to be, uh, you know, dedicated full-time anti-fascist activists to like show up to an event and, you know, protest a particular Nazi who's like in town speaking or something. Uh, and I think it's, we, we need to be able to bring in people who don't want to be a full-time black clad anti-fascist ninja. Uh, we also need to be able to bring in people who, um, are gonna you know show up to a thing and and shout people down and um i think even with the changes that have happened over the last 30 years and even with the valid reasons that people have to protect their identities there is room still for uh for both approaches for both the anonymous and the more public facing one um so that's a really big one uh otherwise uh anti-fascism should be connected to reproductive justice we talked about that that's really cool and important um uh leftism uh 
we I, I've kind of I've I only ever like referenced it and didn't super explicitly talk about it so I hope it didn't get annoying but all the talk about like you would scenes and stuff um so ARA yeah again I don't want to give the impression that everyone in ARA was like a punk or that you couldn't be involved in ARA if you weren't um but it is true that like a very significant sort of organizing base for ARA was punk and counterculture and hardcore and all these youth scenes and stuff um that's a real thing and I think can be really cool and um I think again there are also limits to that and it's you know it can be unfortunate if like the only place where you can go to find leftists is like a punk scene where you know that's not even political organizing and where maybe people are just like uh you know they are leftist and they're all gathering but like it's not a political like there are there are drawbacks to that too obviously but it's i think cool and important and meaningful that um ara that like counter youth countercultures can like uh serve as a base uh for some political organizing and it's worth sort of acknowledging that and being explicit about that and like fostering that of like oh so ara you know a big part of their work was keeping uh nazis and uh far-right people uh and like homophobes out of youth scenes and so they were organizing like for and within youth scenes and that's really cool and important because youth scenes are important in their own way but also because you know that can bring people uh into the struggle in a way they might not have otherwise been um and uh let's see here i think i was just about to come to a to a killer conclusion and lost it <laughs> but uh, it was all good up uh, to that point though so yeah, you don't have to land despite you don't have to uh, the limitations uh the importance uh that here it is this, this is going to sound super like fucking maoist or something i don't even know the the cultural and political terrains of struggle are are closely linked um i yeah i, I don't <laughs> i try not to sound too jargony but uh that yeah that's that that means something that like uh people in real life don't think of politics in terms of like uh particular lines po on politics like, yeah. shows up in people's lives in in ways that is not only uh what we think of as super like political can be cultural as well yeah. etc um yeah maybe there are some others but but those are some big ones that occur to me a lot shannon thank you so much for for talking uh, we've literally skimmed the very top of the surface of the book i really encourage anyone to listening mm -hmm. it to to go out and get it i don't know whether it's available in the uk yet um but it's called we go where they go um and it's jointly published by working class history and pm press um, so I guess go check out their channels and try and find if it's in the UK and when it's when it is coming to the UK. Um, it's a really really great, well researched you know read, and I think really important for us in the UK to be reading just as much as as in America, North America. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Have you got anything else you want to plug in the meantime, or anything else you're doing? Um, no, yeah, the the book is really fucking good. And uh, yeah, no, I I also don't know exactly if it's, uh, but it, it should be out, um, if not now, then very soon in the UK. Um, like you said, working class history uh, is, is really the UK representative. I'll look it up and then I'll say in the intro when it comes out. Okay, okay thank you. Great, thank you.